conference, uh, which you've not yet heard too much about. It was a couple of days of uh, real fine meetings, I felt. And we focused, first of all, on unity. And John did uh, hope that all of us in the ministry would focus on that subject specifically in the coming weeks and months and sermonettes and sermons and so on to try to get a handle on uh, the subject. And it is a very large and many-faceted subject. In fact, it involves the whole plan of God. Now, in one sense, this is not a refocus, and it's not a change, because for the first six and a half years of the existence of the Church of the Great God, the main focus has been on our relationship with God. What does it take to unify you and me with our Father in heaven and with Jesus Christ, our older brother, our soon-coming king and ruler, high priest, and bridegroom. So the subject of unity has been very much at the core and the base uh, and the fundamental teaching of this church since its inception. But now we're turning uh, the lights on, I guess, a little bit stronger, or if you were adjusting a telescope, we're trying to seek a greater focus on unity, because it is certainly a huge concern, the biggest concern, I think, within the churches of God today, or the church of God in its many elements today. It's a monster subject, uh, so I'm thinking now, as I began to prepare this sermon, that, uh, okay, I was just handed a note here. Uh, anyone can call 1-503-936-0455 if this is not coming through. So uh, uh, Phil Shields is sitting here with a <laughs> a cell phone, and uh, and you can read him. Pardon? If it's coming through, it'd be nice to know. Yeah. If it's not coming true, then this announcement means absolutely nothing anyway. <laughs> Pardon? Yeah, it, it would uh, it make us feel better if we knew that we were being heard. So maybe someone can call and uh, and let us know if, if you are hearing. Uh, let's, we'll, we'll just continue, and maybe someone will let us know if, uh, if we're coming through, and probably maybe we'll get 40 calls all of a sudden and interrupt what we're doing. <clears throat> anyway, Richard started on this subject even as the conference was in progress last week and uh, talked to us about Psalm 133, among other things and how unity is desirable, and we all certainly wish for peace and, and uh, well-being within the church and within our own groups, wherever they are, and our families, and so on. But I believe I will start a series here called The Keys to Unity, because there are many keys to this subject. And I, I sort of started into it from one direction, and the more I thought about it, I realized I had to go way back. Uh, and start at the beginning asking the question, why is there division in the first place? You remember Herbert Armstrong always said, you've got to get to the cause, not just always treat the effect. What is the cause? Why are we separated? Why do we fight among ourselves? Why is there division? Once we understand that, then we can move on toward solutions. Now, there was at one time in the universe absolute unity. There was the Father and the Son 
the 24 elders, the peace before the throne, billions of angels, as we heard in the uh, sermonette, and there was absolute perfect harmony. It wasn't Bob Harmony. We have Bob sitting back here. The root of his name is Harmon or Harmony. Uh, Bob is probably not completely harmonized with himself or with everyone else or with God yet. Don't mean to pick on him, but he's probably like the rest of us. Not totally in harmony as yet. But there was a time when it was like that. What happened? What changed that? How did this occur? What were the root causes of it? Well, this isn't new information, but let's go back to Isaiah 14. We've been there many, many times over the last 30 or 40 or 50 years, or how long ever you've been in the church. Verse 12 of chapter 14 of Isaiah. How is the question. How are you fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How did this happen? That such peace, such beauty, such harmony of purpose and oneness that was there with all the holy angels and God in his throne. How did this happen? How are you cut down to the ground which did weaken the nations? Now this chapter starts out talking about the king of Babylon and discussing human beings and their problems, but the type is the same because Satan did influence man, and uh, then he just blends right in here to Satan himself and what occurred. For you have said in your heart, here is the answer as to how it happened. What's the first word of the explanation? I. I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will be in charge. I will be the teacher. I will be the big wheel. That's how it started. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be the most high. The like isn't in the original Hebrew. I will be the most high. I will be above God, in other words. But someone else had something to say about it. Yet you shall be brought down to hell to the sides of the pit. They that see you shall narrowly look upon you and consider you saying, Is this the man that made the earth to tremble, that did shake kingdoms, that made the world as a wilderness and destroyed the cities thereof, and so on? This is not going to be, but it has been for some time. You see, the solution was not immediate. God did not restore unity right then. He had a bigger purpose a bigger plan, and it involved you and me. And he could have changed Satan right then, couldn't he? If he's able to do it now, he could do it then. So that's not a problem. But he did not change Satan and restore that harmony in the universe immediately because of you and me. He had a plan laid before the foundations of the earth were ever laid that he was going to share his kingdom with beings that he would create, work with, and bring to holiness and righteousness such as himself, and let them share that glory forever and ever. So unity does not happen overnight. That's something we need to establish right at the very beginning here. It takes time. Now, I gave a sermon on unity and how it will come about about two years ago, I think, somewhere in that neighborhood and showed that God is going to bring unity back to the church, and that he will provide a leader uh, in the form of one who comes in the spirit and attitude of David, 
probably one of the two witnesses. I am assuming a certain amount there, but the uh, the parallel seemed to be that many, many types in the Bible are going to come together right at the end, and then, of course, blend into oneness as Jesus Christ is all in all. So as these types come together, uh, these different functions of the men of the Bible and the holiness and the righteousness they saw are going to be revived as we get closer to the end of this age. We won't go back through all of that information. <clears throat> so instead of dwelling on that, we'll get into some of the things that you and I must do, not just what God is going to do, because we've already established that, I think, pretty well. Now, Ezekiel 28 carries this same idea that we see here in Isaiah 14. Ezekiel 28, verse 15. You were perfect in your ways from the day that you were created till iniquity was found in you. So when God had created Lucifer and all the other angels, he looked on that work, I'm sure, and said, it is good. He was a beautiful, splendorous, lovely, wonderful being, full of heat and light and righteousness and love and harmony and beauty. That's what Lucifer was. By the multitude of your merchandise, they have filled the midst of you with violence, and you have sinned, verse 16. Therefore I will cast you as profane out of the mountain of God, and I will destroy you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Here's part of the problem with him in verse 17. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You have corrupted your wisdom by reason of your brightness, so he was beautiful and he had wisdom. I will cast you to the ground. I will lay you before kings that they may behold you as an everlasting example of what happens to those who sin and turn from God and break the harmony and the beauty, the oneness, the unity of the universe. So Satan's problem was what? Selfishness, vanity. It was rooted in pride. That was the cause of all these problems was pride, self-exaltation. It created division and destruction of the relationship. Now, what did Satan the devil do then when Adam and Eve were created? You can go back to Genesis 3. And what did he uh, use to get Adam and Eve? Pride. Are you going to let him tell you what to do? Are you going to let God tell you what to do, that you can't eat of that tree? He's lying to you. If you eat of that tree, you'll be like God yourself. He knew exactly how to use this. He saw what had happened to him. And he saw human beings with human nature there, and it was so perfectly clear to Satan how to trip them up. Get them to say, nobody can tell you what to do. Because that is one of the very strongest of human feelings and emotions, is nobody's going to tell me what to do. We've been like that since we were born. My mom pushed me out into the cold world and said, get cold, get toweled off, get diapered, and I rebelled. No one was going to tell me to come out of that womb and face the harsh light of a hospital room. And boy, did I let him know about it, and so did you. 
And if you didn't, they smacked you on your rear end, I guess, to get you to say something. And the first thing you did was rebel and fight it. And we've been fighting it ever since, haven't we? That's a very common expression. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. It's not just American. It's everywhere. It's human. And it started as a satanic thing. And what did he do? Again, he said, nobody can tell you what to do. And they said, boy, that's for sure. And then when the fall came, they listened to him and sinned. But it wasn't their fault. Human pride does not want to admit it's wrong. That's one of the hardest things for a human being to admit is that he's wrong about something. We will fight. We will argue incessantly. We will justify. We will try to blame someone else. First thing they did was try to blame God. The woman you gave me did this. It's all your fault for giving me a woman. So he blamed both, really. He blamed God for the woman, and he blamed the woman for being there. This did a lot for their marriage. And on and on it went, placing blame and justification. We will do anything we can to evade the wrath, won't we? Somebody else did it. I am the victim here. There's a lot of that in the United States of America today. This kid that just killed people here in Oregon the last few days will be made out to be a victim somehow, some way. It's just part of the fabric of American life to cause the person who perpetrated the crime to be the victim. Bad schooling, bad parenting, bad television, bad something. We, we can't blame the person. Okay, let's go on to Job 41. Job 41. Did we hear from anyone? Are we going out? It's not as loud as they want. That's the first time anybody has said, Daryl isn't loud enough to me. I'll see what I can do. <clears throat> Job 41, verse 34. He beholds all high things. He is a king over all the children of pride. Satan is the king over the children of pride. So if you are proud, Satan is your king. That's uncomfortable sounding. God is humble. He's the one we want to be our king, isn't he? But too often in daily life, sometimes we answer to the wrong king, and it gets us in trouble. Let's go to Proverbs now. We'll read a few Proverbs. They're really good on this subject. Proverbs 13.10. Proverbs 13.10. <clears throat> Only by pride comes contention. That's interesting. I didn't look that one up to see what the original Hebrew is, but that almost narrows it down pretty well to only my pride comes contention. So therefore, if there's argument, if there's bad feeling, if there's difficulty between any two people, you know, based on this verse, that somebody has pride. Of course, if you were in the middle of the argument, it's going to be the other person. I, I understand that. That's a given, isn't it? I suspect 
that it's a two-sided coin, and there's probably pride on both sides. Somebody's not willing to back down. Someone's not willing to admit wrong, or take blame, or will self-justify. Because self-righteousness is a part. The self wants to be right. And that's all self-righteousness is. Because I am right and you're wrong. So only by pride comes contention. But with the well-advised is wisdom. If somebody really knows what's going on, they're going to avoid that, in other words, and use wisdom, and perhaps they can gain their brother as opposed to alienating further their brother. We've got enough alienation as it is. Uh, while we're in the neighborhood, Proverbs 16, verse 18. Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. Better it is to be of a humble spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. That's pretty well self-explanatory, but if you have pride, destruction will follow. And destruction of relationships with God follow when we do not want to do what God says, but we are proud of what we want to do. We want to take a certain direction, and maybe it doesn't quite coincide with the way God would have us handle this particular matter. But what happens? If we were truly humble, we would say, well, I want to do this, but God says do this, therefore I will do what God says. But what, what stops us? What grabs us by the throat? Our pride and vanity. I want to do it this way. And we go the wrong way and we get in trouble. There was an old comedian in the south, the mouth of the Mississippi, he called himself, Jerry Clower. Some of you probably heard his uh, records. But he had one little bit that was really good. He said, when you start arguing with yourself, you're about to mess up. Well, he said, fixing to mess up. That's Mississippi for about to. Now, you want to do something, and you know you shouldn't, and you're sitting there arguing with yourself, figuring out that your way is better than God's way because this is going to please my senses. And, and you make provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust of it, as Paul says in Romans. So when, when you find yourself arguing with yourself, watch out. Because you're always arguing against yourself. That's a good one to remember. I, I don't remember too many comedy routines, and I won't try to give you that whole one, but that was the point of it. When you find yourself arguing with yourself, you're fixing to mess up. I've used that one on myself several times, and I even argued with that. <laughs> you know you're about to foul things up, but boy, we go ahead, don't we? That pride of doing what we want to do, that vanity, that selfishness, is a hard nut to crack. Now let's go to Proverbs 29. Proverbs 29. Verse 23. An angry man stirs up strife, and a furious man abounds in transgression. Why do we get angry? Why do we get furious? Because our way is being threatened. Because our sense of being right, or best, or first, is being threatened. Our pride is being injured and wounded by another driver, by a mate, by a boss, by an underling. And therefore we get furious. And how fast it can bite you. Like a snake stirred up, it just strikes. And we can lose it so fast. Isaiah 28, 
Isaiah 28, and verse 1. Woe to the crown of pride, Isaiah 28.1, to the drunkards of Ephraim, whose glorious beauty is a fading flower. Well, Ephraim is the firstborn son. We are the first fruits. We are a type of Ephraim in that sense. And God says here we are spiritually drunkard, whose glorious beauty is a fading flower. Our pride is destroying us right before our very eyes. Does the church of God, as we knew it, 12, 15, 20, 30, 40 years ago, even resemble now what it did then. It's just fading and closing up like a morning glory in the sun. Almost gone. The glorious beauty is a fading flower which are on the head of the fat valleys of them that are overcome with wine. So our pride has to be involved with the breakup of the church. I think it's saying so right here. We thought we were okay. We'll talk about that a little bit later on some more. Let's move on now, though, to uh, 1 Timothy 3. 1 Timothy 3. And verse 6. 1 Timothy 3, 6. Speaking of the, con the uh, qualifications of a deacon a minister, a servant, not a novice, not new, not just born to the church, lest being lifted up with pride he fall into the condemnation of the devil. It's so easy to become officious in our office. I remember the days of the purple armbands on the deacons at the feast in uh, Big Sandy when I was just a little guy. Boy, did all of us kids want to have one of those. Even one that just said assistant deacon because we would help park the cars. You know, the boys would hang around. That was that was the job we liked, was help park the cars, run the parking lot. But the deacon had one of those that said deacon on it, with purple and white. And they had some that said assistant deacon. Boy, when we got up to age 15, 16, that was what we really wanted, because you could tell people where to park their car. We would have really made good servants <laughs> at that time. But boy, did those deacons bark orders. They were in charge, and everybody was going to know it. Now, you don't move that car one inch more. You stop it now, and they hand the hand signals. And if you didn't get it just right, you had to back it up so much. And you had to be in that parking place just right. And all did it get out of hand. But it appealed to us kids, you know, to have that kind of power. We have to be very careful when we're young. We came out in the birth, of the birth canal squalling and wanting to be in charge. That's what it was. <laughs> I want my will done here. I want to be warm. I want to be dry. I want to be filled. I want everything just right for me. And we've walked in pride pretty much ever since. Maybe we're working on it now. First John 2. First John 2. Let's begin in verse 15. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. What does that mean? It means don't love this world. Don't love its society. Don't love its culture. Don't love its cities. Don't love its movies. Don't love the things that are in this culture. 
that's just a real short list I just gave you. If you want to sit down and make a list of things you shouldn't love, you can start examining every bit of the Babylonian culture that we live in. Now, that's a pretty tall order, and I'm probably quit preaching and just started meddling because uh, there are a lot of things in this world we need to put on the list. And some of them are very, very dear to our hearts. They really are. Love not the world, neither the things or the cosmos, the system. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. How could that be said any plainer? You can't serve two masters. You can't serve this culture and God's culture. You just can't do it. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. The pride of youth, the pride of height, the pride of beauty, the pride of intellect, these things are all going away. They are of the world. God even says we have to be willing to give up our life, doesn't he? So the pride of life means nothing. We have to be able possibly to give it up as a martyr, but we have an even tougher job, and that is giving it up every day, every thought having to be brought into the captivity of Christ. How can people think that living a Christian life is easy? When I have to control every thought that goes through my mind, I'll tell you, that's a tough job for me. Maybe you don't experience that, but I do. And we have to be examining every one of those that flows through there. And when we have wrong ones go through, then we have to back up and say, oh boy, I fouled it up again. Because the pride of life, the pride of self, is there. We always want to be in the forefront. But it's all going away. And going away very soon. That's why Christ said you can't serve God and mammon or the things of this world, the things of this life. That means changing our whole focus. Everything we think, everything we do, has to be centered for living the way God lives. Now let's go to Matthew 23. We'll get specific here. Matthew 23. Verse 9. Well, let's begin in verse 8. Well, let's begin in verse 7. I, it's hard to leave out anything. Verse 7, And greetings in the markets, and to be called of men, Rabbi, Rabbi, Master, Master. They just love to be given approbation of men. Somebody called me Mr. today. I didn't say anything about it. I didn't have time. But uh, please, that's too close to Master for my comfort. Uh, it makes my collar feel a little too tight. I don't like to be called Mr. Maybe for little children as a as an appellation for adults, uh, it's still okay. But in a religious sense, to, to stand up and speak, uh, I, I, I don't want even to be called Mr. It's just one letter away from Master. I don't even like to be called Minister. Servant is better. It reminds me of what I'm here for. Minister has the trappings of an office, so servant just seems to fit better. Somebody asked me what's my, my uh, profession, and I say servant. Uh, they wouldn't know what to think anymore, would they? You say minister, of course, they think you got your collar and your mind turned around backward. But hopefully we're getting that straightened out. 
They like to be called master. Be not called rabbi, for one is your master, even Christ, and all you are brethren. See, Satan, that's what he did. He started turning around and said, I want to be called master. That pride of being number one. Call no man your father on the earth, for one is your father which is in heaven. Neither be called masters, for one is your master even Christ. But he that is greatest among you shall be your servant. Now here's the one I wanted to get to, and that laid the background for it. Whosoever shall exalt himself shall be abased. That is an unequivocal statement from Jesus Christ. This will happen. If you exalt yourself, you will be abased. It's just like gravity. And it's put that way. He that shall humble himself shall be exalted. So it's a process. It's a daily choice. Of whether It's a moment-to-moment -moment choice of whether we will be prideful and vain and reactive to others in a hateful or frustrating way to them, or whether we'll be meek and gentle and loving and kind. Moment to moment, day to day. Because we have to choose. Am I going to get my back up? Or am I going to take this? Will I suffer wrongfully? Not deserving the criticism I'm getting? But take it patiently anyway? He says if you did wrong and you suffer for it or get criticized for it, there's not even any reward for being patient then. The reward comes if you didn't do it and got accused of it and you were patient about it. We justify and get all on our high horse at criticism no matter where it comes from, even if we're guilty, don't we? Or at least we have that tendency to. Because we don't like to be told we're wrong. But when we didn't do it, then we really get on our high horse as a tendency. We'll go to great lengths to prove we're not guilty. Whereas there could be a reward in simply being humble and saying, you got the right guy. Might be the wrong reasons, but you got the right guy. You know, I've been accused of things that I did and accused of things that I didn't do, and so have you. But it didn't make any difference in that specific instance, whether it was right or wrong, whether the accusation was correct or not. Because if I hadn't done that, I'd done something else probably just as bad or worse. So they had the right guy. So I should just take it patiently. You know, what right do I have to defend myself? I have sinned and come short of the glory of God. I was listed as a sinner. Now, the blood of Christ wipes that off my name. And I can be clean through his blood, not because of me, but through him. So I don't have any right to say, I've not sinned, or you're wrong about me. Because if you say Daryl Henson has sinned, <laughs> well, how can I argue? There's no argument. I'm the right guy. I want the reward. I really do want the reward of taking it patiently when I am falsely accused, which does once in a while happen. Usually I'm guilty. You know, what can I say? I'm usually guilty of what I'm charged with. Maybe it's just a matter of degrees. 
but sometimes I'm not guilty. And my reaction then is what can get me treasure in heaven. But if I seek to exalt myself and say, hey, wait a minute, I, that's wrong. I didn't do that. Then I lose treasure in heaven. I just bankrupt myself. So no gain. Isn't it hard to esteem others better than yourself? That's what we're told we have to do, to esteem others better than ourselves. But it's so easy to begin to make those comparisons and get ourselves in trouble and get our relationships in trouble with God and with ourselves. You ever find yourself arguing with God? Like I said earlier, I find myself arguing with myself that what I'm about to do is going to be okay, but I found myself actually on my knees arguing with God about what I want to do or did do or whatever and trying to justify before him. <laughs> now that's, you know, that's just stupid. But we do it. I guess that makes me stupid. When I do that, I am stupid. Is it any wonder we got ourselves into the mess we're in as a church and as people and our relationship with God? So whoever shall exalt himself shall be abased. There'll be a little bit more to say along that line here in just a minute. Now let's go to Philippians 4. Philippians 4. Philippians 4. And let's pick it up in verse 11. Now here's Paul explaining to the Philippians uh, his situation. Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. Whatever the conditions, I have learned to be content. It didn't come easy for Paul. We need to understand that. Sometimes we whine and gripe and complain, and we begin to sound like mosquitoes. Uh, you know, there, there they were walking through the desert with no water and no mosquitoes around doing their mosquito routine. Murmur, 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 whine, whine, whine with God. Well, you know, I guess there's no mosquitoes around. You have to play like there are. But sometimes we get that way. We just haven't learned to be content with what we do have. And then we wonder why God doesn't give us more. We've lifted ourselves up in pride. Say, what, that's, what is it when you whine? What is it when you murmur? It's pride. All sin is based in pride. How is that based in pride? I deserve better. God, why don't you answer my prayer? Everybody could, should be able to see that I should have better than what I have. And God says, well, you haven't learned to be content with what you do have. Why would I give you more? You want this answer to this prayer. Well, learn to be content. Maybe you'll get your heart's desire. There's a psalm about that. We're thankful he'll give us our heart's desire. But if we rise up in pride and say, I'm not getting enough, you're not giving me the answers I want, I, I can see very readily why God wouldn't do it. What is it like when your child comes to you? And he says, I have my rights, and I deserve to have the car tonight. No kid of mine ever got the car like that. <laughs> he comes and says, Dad, boy, I'd sure like to have the car tonight. I'll fill the gas tank, and I'll take very good care of it, and I won't race, and I won't drink, and I won't smoke pot, 
and I won't stay out late. If you tell me to be in at 10.30, I'll be in at 10.30. Well, that's pushing it. If you tell me to be in by midnight, I'll be in by midnight. I might just do it under those circumstances. Not because the child has the right, but because the child has the right attitude and is not whining and murmuring and claiming his rights. Being prideful. I deserve. You know, I only have one right. I only have one right. In America, we talk a lot about our rights. We have the right to do this and the right to do that. But I only have one. I have the right to die. Only two things sure, death and taxes, they use as a joke. But the death is only the real true one of that. The point that all men wants to die. That's the only real right I have. Because I've sinned, and I deserve that. Now, if I do what I'm supposed to do, God may waive that and give me life. And I have trust and faith and belief that he will do just that, in spite of myself. But I can't say I deserve it. can't say you owe it to me, because I'm such a good fellow, because I'm not. I got news for you, you aren't either. We'll see that clearer and clearer as we go. But this is the root of our troubles. Now let's go to 2 Corinthians, and we'll see it very plainly here. 2 Corinthians 10. I hear Paul in verse 5. says, Casting down imaginations and every high thing, every prideful thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, anything that is in this book, is the knowledge of God. And anyone who exalts himself or his opinion or his desires above the guidelines of what God gives us here is a recipe for how to live is exaltation of self. It's prideful. And bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. We've already covered that principle. You don't have a right to think what you want to think. You don't have a right to lust after money or sex or... Uh, if it's wrong sex, or anything impure. You don't have a right. Because God says, you're supposed to think my thoughts. And we have laid ourselves on the line as bond slaves of Jesus Christ. And that was part of the contract we made, is that we would control every thought and not be selfish and prideful and self-exalting. That's what he's talking about here. Every high thing that exalts itself and having in a readiness to revenge all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled, to take it back, to straighten it out, to take vengeance on whatever wrong thoughts we may have had. Do you look on things after the outward appearance? It's easy to see somebody else showing pride and vanity in the way they walk, the way they talk, the way they dress, the way they are. But what about us? Can we read what's inside? Let's go on down. Verse 12, for we dare not, here's something we dare not do. <laughs> this is instruction to you and me. We dare not make ourselves of the number or compare ourselves with some that commend themselves, but they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. 
Therefore, I think, as the original says, they become fools. What good does it do to compare yourself to another human being? You can make yourself feel good about yourself because you, say, you may say, well, I may not be much, but I'm better than so-and-so. Now, what does that gain you? God says that attitude will be abased. But it is so easy to lift up ourselves above someone else. It may be a matter of when does the store close, five or six. And we would argue and argue that we're right and they're wrong, <laughs> that we, we are bound to be right about this. How could I be wrong? Well, just pick a number, anything that we want to argue about. But we dare not do it. Well, how is this displayed spiritually? I'm Philadelphian. The rest of you are Laodiceans. Now, is that lifting oneself above another? To me, it simply makes the one making the claim Laodicean, because they're saying, I am rich and increased in goods, but you are naked and blind. That is a Laodicean attitude. It is making a spiritual comparison between thee and me. And I, of course, am better than you are. How many professed Laodiceans have you ever met? I am a Laodicean. Very, very rare animal. <laughs> How many professed Philadelphians have you met? Oh, there's lots of those. Lots of organizations, lots of individuals. Everybody would like to think they're Philadelphian because it sounds like the reward's better and it makes them feel better. But there's a catch-22 there. The very fact that you make the claim destroys any possibility that you might be a Philadelphian. Because pride is at the root of Laodiceanism. Why are we lukewarm and lackadaisical toward God? Because we have a high enough opinion of ourselves that we're not groveling on our knees and throwing ourselves on our faces, crying out, God, forgive me, a sinner! Like the publican, he couldn't even lift his eyes to God. He felt so bad about the way that he was. He wasn't Laodicean or slack or lukewarm about it. He cried out. But now the Pharisee thought he was okay. He didn't need to cry out. He said, Lord, I deserve this, and, and I'm above these people, and I'm doing fine. And Christ said, no, you're not. You've exalted yourself. You will be abased. When we're lifted up with pride, we will fall. Let's go to Psalm 75 now. Psalm 75. Verse 5, Psalm 75, 5. Lift not up your horn on high. Don't lift your antlers up in the sky and say, what a fine-looking bull elk am I, or whatever you do to lift your own horn. Speak not with a stiff neck, unbending, unyielding, selfish. I'll do it my way. For promotion comes neither from the east, nor from the west, nor from the south. But the God's throne is in the sides of the north. God is the judge. He puts down one and sets up another. That's something Nebuchadnezzar had to learn. And he got to eat grass for seven years. Now, if you want to be king of the world and think that you're the finest specimen of human being that ever walked and lift yourself up with pride, maybe you'll get to eat grass seven years and have the view of the heavens fall on your back. 
God used him as an example. Now, why do we have all these problems? We've been talking about it, and pride is at the very root of it. But let's go back to James 4, because you can't really discuss this subject without getting into James 4. Well, I guess you can, but I don't think you've covered it all. And there's other scriptures that I'm not going to have time to cover, <clears throat> which are probably just as applicable. Applicable, But this one is good because it asks a question and it answers it. From whence come wars and fightings among you? Now, who is he talking to here? James is addressing the church. He's talking about brethren, ministers, warring among themselves. Whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence, even of your lusts that war in your of God or of man, for favor, for well-being, for grace, but you feel like you deserve it. The lust of the flesh. I deserve this. You ask and receive not because you ask in the wrong attitude, he says. You ask amiss. You're not approaching it right that you may consume it upon your lusts so that you can get your prideful way. Who just died? The man who sang, I did it my way. Made a big hit out of it. I saw somebody on the TV news the other day, a little kid about, I don't know, 19 years old, and he's trying to sing that song at the top of his lungs. I did it my way. So now he is directing his life toward vanity and pride and doing it his way after his mentor, Frank Sinatra. Sad. Where's Frank today? Moldering in his grave. He did it his way. It's appointed to all men wants to die. All that vanity, all that pride just got buried. And it's not going to come up until the great white throne judgment and he'll be hanging with clawed earrings and uh, ragged clothes and saying, I guess my way didn't work out too well. We ask amiss, you adulterers and adulteresses. Now, I don't know that they were physically committing these sins at that point. Maybe they were. Know you not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Same thing we read back in 1 John 2. Spiritual adultery. Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. A friend of the things of the world, as John put it. I think we still have a lot of work to do, brethren. I know I do. I'm fighting against this culture, against this way, against this cosmos. And I find it very, very hard to do because Satan's broadcast and the, the, the broadcast of man and all the technology today lead me to exalt myself, to put myself above others, to grow in materialism and wealth, to do whatever I can to enhance self. That's what all the ads are about. You deserve this. You should do this because you're such a wonderful person. That's what the ads are all telling me. Drink lots of beer and you'll be young and athletic and skinny. And you get to cavort on the beach and play volleyball. I never noticed that in real life. I drank beer, I got pot-bellied, fat, old, and out of shape. So I quit drinking beer, essentially. May have one once a month. And I'm still old and fat and ugly and out of shape. So I've still got work to do. <laughs> Drink, stopping drinking beer didn't solve the problem, did it? May have solved part of it. I'd be 
maybe not older, but fatter and worse out of shape, if I can continue that as well. So each thing you take off helps a little, but none of them are the complete answer. We have to keep after the things of this world to be sure that we're not being ruled over by them. Whosoever, therefore, will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Do you think that the Scripture says in vain, the spirit that dwells in us lusts to envy? Is, is it true or is it not true? Is it all in vain to say that? But he gives more grace. Wherefore, he says, God resists the proud. He does not like. He is against. He resists. He holds at arm's length. He turns his back away from. He turns his face from. He will not have a relationship with the proud. So if you're going to have a relationship with God, something has to go. has to be pride. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit to God. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Interesting, isn't it? But if we draw close to God and get rid of vanity and pride, those are the things that Satan works on. It's what he used to try to exalt himself above God, and he was abased. He used the very same tools on Adam and Eve and won, and they were abased. And he used the very same things on you and me, and throughout our lives we have been abased. And when we lifted ourselves up in pride, thinking we were the church, the only church, nothing but the best, and we already had our flea bag packed, and all we were waiting for was a fateful phone call, we would waft off to a place of safety and be delivered. We thought we had it made. It was a few in. All we're waiting for was the phone call. Oh, brother, <laughs> have we ever been abased? And it hasn't stopped yet. God resists that kind of attitude. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Now, I'll drop that one right there. <clears throat> Are we proud? Are you proud? Give yourself a test. You know, we, we, wouldn't like, we don't like to think of ourselves as proud, do we? We like to think of ourselves as humble. I mean, we just read that God likes humble people. He doesn't like proud people. And so it would be easy to, you know, sort of convince ourselves, well, I must not really be proud because I know God loves me and I know I love God. Now, is that totally honest? <laughs> don't we want to be in first place? Don't we want to be first in line? Don't we want to be first in influence? Don't we want to be first in honor, if at all possible? Don't we want to be right? Won't we argue to be right? If we're over someone else, will we pull rank in order to be made right, whether we're right or wrong? Remember the old saying in business, it's not a matter of who's right or wrong, it's a matter of who's an authority around here. So if you can't prove your argument by logic and reason and facts, you pull rank in order to be right. It happens in families. A kid asks a question you can't answer, who's in charge around here? <laughs> happens between husbands and wives. Do anything to be right. We put other people down to lift ourselves up over them. If we can make them look bad, we somehow think that makes us look good. 
That's what all the sitcoms basically are about. Put everybody on the program down and lift ourselves up. That doesn't mean we can't kid each other lovingly, kindly, gently, and uh, that's sort of one of the things, the glues that helps keep us together. If it's used right, we can kid each other, but it sure better not be mean-spirited. It sure better not be really putting someone down. Maybe it's better to mostly put ourselves down. Self-deprecation rather than someone else. It's safer that way. Humor is very, very hard to control. But, you know, I don't even tease somebody I don't like. They're not worth the effort. <laughs> you know, if I, if I tease you or kid you about something, that means I really like you. I just wanted to clear the air on that one. Because I don't bother if I don't like you. Now, that doesn't mean if I haven't joked to you that I don't like you. Don't. <laughs> That's the other ditch, too. <laughs> There's some people you don't know how to joke with because all they do is grunt. You know, if there's no response, well, then you, you don't do that. But uh, life is too serious to laugh. But on the other hand, if we couldn't laugh, I don't think we could stand the serious life. Uh, you know, it's, uh, but we have to learn to use that and make sure it's done the right way. I'll pick on Texas because I was born there and I didn't get big enough to stay there. They kick the little ones out because everything is bigger and better in Texas. It's an attitude, an attitude I can't stand because I never got bigger and better. I left at 18 and haven't been back except to drive through and maybe visit a few people and relatives. Desert in the west and swamp in the east and a whole lot of it. <laughs> I used to be amused living in Alaska and these Texans would try to come up and tell us all these wonderful things about Texas. And here Alaska would, I mean Texas would sit down in the corner of Alaska and uh, the mountains were higher, and there was water, and there was fish, and uh, there were trees. Well, there's trees in East Texas, sort of, and brambles and things. I don't need, I, don't, I better just stop right there. Because, see, I, maybe I could exalt Alaska, having lived there. I didn't make Alaska. I didn't make it how big it is. I didn't make it how pretty it is. And it's got a lot of mosquitoes, and it gets cold. So it has bad things about it, too. So why do we brag about where we're from? Because it makes us feel prideful. Why won't the Confederacy ever die? <laughs> They're still waving the flag down there. We were right after all. We should have won. 100, over a hundred years later. And still, we got the redneck southerners claiming they're better than the North. It divides the country to one degree or another. It certainly divides when two people get together and one is a damn Yankee and the other is a Confederate and they start arguing about it. It certainly limits friendship because of the pride of the North and the pride of the South. It's everywhere. And we are affected by it. My family is better than your family. On and on it goes. If you think you don't have pride, what happens when your opinion or your way of doing something or your way of living is questioned? Does your neck begin to swell? You begin to turn red? You begin to get uncomfortable and frustrated? We still have pride. What happens when you're criticized? Well, we begin to swell up like a toad. 
You don't have a right view of me. You don't know me like I know me. I'm really a nice guy. I don't care what you think. You know, that's our reaction. What about when we're corrected? Now, that's even worse than being criticized. Nobody wants to be corrected. That pride and vanity wells up so fast. Doesn't Paul say in Hebrews 12, no chastening for the moment seems to be good, seems to be pleasant, because we simply in our pride don't like to be corrected. Why can't we fulfill Matthew 18 in our relationship with our brethren? Brethren, we fear their reaction. We fear, if they've sinned against us, we fear to go for it to them because we fear they will be lifted up in pride and they will put us down and mash us like a bug. Or they will be distressed with us. Or they won't like us anymore because we tried to correct them. And you know what? That's a very justified approach. <laughs> because that's what happens. Somebody called me not long ago and said, I need to talk to so-and-so. But I can't. And I said, why can't you? Because they'll get mad. I said, that's all right. Do it anyway. That's their problem. You have a responsibility. But we don't like to accept that responsibility because we're afraid our own pride will be damaged or our own relationship with them will be damaged. So that one goes begging quite frequently because the pride in the person that would be corrected and pride in us who don't want to be made look bad to look bad by that person who comes back all over us. Therefore, the relationship isn't there. But you have to be so awfully careful if you think you want to run to somebody and correct them on the basis of Matthew 18. What about the one who fins the little one and the millstone? Remember that one? You better think about it. You better pray about it. You better be sure your attitude is right and that your true motive, your real motive, is to gain your brother. Because if your motive is selfish and it's to put them down or straighten them out, you're going to fall on your face. Best to think about that one. Pray about it a while. Wait for the right opportunity. God didn't say you had to run charging down there the moment you find out they said something bad about you. And straighten them out. No, think it through. Use wisdom. Pray for your brother, love your brother, and go to your brother. And maybe you can be closer when it's done rather than further apart. That's where humility wins and pride loses out. How much time do I have? Not very much. Where am I? Oh, we only got page left. I won't uh, remember Judges 21, 25. Where every man leaned to his own understanding, did that which, which was right in his own eyes, and the confusion and frustration that happened in Israel as a result of it. We have a situation like that today, where we do not have an overall leader in the church that we can see beyond Christ. And we've got every man leaning to his own understanding and being prideful and trying to be teachers. It says, be not many teachers. They'll receive a double condemnation, or a greater condemnation. And yet today... We rise in pride and say, hey, I'm right. The rest of you are wrong. I want to be the teacher. We need to think very carefully before we take that stand because we are exalting ourselves and our opinion and our pride above someone else's opinion. 
Psalm 39, 5. Man at his best state is altogether vanity. At our very best state, do we truly grasp what human nature is like? Do we think we're okay? This is at the root of the war and the fighting and the trouble. Isaiah 64, 6. All our righteousness is as filthy rags. All of us. Do you believe Paul was a man of God? Do you believe Paul was used to write the Bible and that the scriptures... I'm, I'm sure Paul wrote a lot of things that aren't in the Bible. But certain of them were included by Jesus Christ in the Bible and it became scripture seven times purified. I don't know whether we believe Paul or not. What did he say in Romans 7.24? I won't turn to that one for sake of time, but you know it well. Oh, wretched man that I am. Here was a man who had been an apostle for years and years and a teacher of others, and he looked upon himself as wretched. A wretch. Who will deliver me from this body of sin, he said. Thankfully, Jesus Christ. Revelation 3.17, they all slumbered and slept. We are wretched and naked and blind. Or we were. I hope we're getting out of it. I hope we're making progress. We are proud. Have you ever seen any proud flesh on a person? Something that grows, puffs up, and it, it isn't normal. It's a growth that uh, sticks itself up, let's say, beside your big toe. And it makes your toe really, really sore. And it affects your whole body. And pride does that. It affects our whole body and it affects the whole body of Christ. And we've seen the whole body of Christ in trouble as a result of proud flesh. I've already covered a couple of things here, so we'll cut right down to the bottom of this. But they all slumbered and slept. They all rose up in pride, thinking that they were clothed and saying they were Philadelphian when really we were all Laodicean. We all slumbered and slept. No exceptions. Some slept harder than others, I suppose. And maybe we can be proud and say, well, I was just sort of napping. I wasn't in deep REM sleep. I was just napping where these other guys were asleep. See, it's so easy to say I, I was better than you is. It's just that it's so natural. Now, let me give you one personal example, and we're going to shut this thing down. I, I caught, got caught red-handed. Some of you in the room noticed I was, I was going through and circling the scriptures in red in my notes, just the beginning of the sermonette, and my red pen started leaking. It leaked all over my hands. So it fits real well with the story I'm about to tell you. We uh, tried to get the cheapest rate on the flight out here, and being Memorial Weekend, they were higher than normal, and there were no discount flights whatsoever. So I got stuck with a fairly high-priced ticket, and even then, to get the cheapest one, we had to take the milk run. We had to stop in Detroit, we had to stop again in Minnesota, and then we had to stop finally in Portland. So it was going to kind of sort of be, at best, sort of an all-day deal to try to save a few bucks. And uh, I was thinking about some things, and I hadn't had too much sleep the night before, so I kind of napped a little bit on the plane, and we'd gotten through Detroit, got into Minneapolis, and uh, we had a stop over there, and... I had changed my watch already to Pacific time. And 
then I somehow in my mind, I guess, subtracted the mountain zone out of there and didn't count it. But I heard two stewardesses behind me say, we have two hours. And I thought she was talking about us, the passengers. But apparently she was talking about the crew because we didn't have two hours. So I thought, well, I've got two hours. I'll get off this thing and stretch a bit and walk around, go out in the parking lot and get some fresh air and just, you know, uh, just take advantage of the two hours rather than sort of sit here in a chair. And my wife said, no, we don't have that long. I said, yeah, I just heard him say it back there. And I was, I guess, probably a little bit proud and arrogant about it because I did not take seriously what my wife had just told me. Ephesians 5, submit yourselves one to another. Uh, submit yourself to your wife. I didn't do it. Red-handed. <laughs> So I get up off the plane, and I take off for the parking lot. Well, I come back two hours ready, rather to board my plane, and come on out to Portland. My wife's standing there in front of the gate, says, your plane's been gone a long time. <laughs> pride and arrogance. And I was going to speak on pride and arrogance today. <laughs> oh, boy. Well, the next flight was going to cause us a five-hour delay. Didn't have another flight for a long, long time. So I got to eat, eat a little cheese pizza and get fatter and cool my heels and think about my attitude. Now, did it just affect me? No, my wife has trouble traveling anyway. She's not here today. She may be revived enough to come to Potluck and visit with you all tonight, I hope. But she was so zonked today because we didn't get in here until 12.30 this morning. And didn't get to bed and asleep till after that. So what did it do? Did it just affect me? No, it affected my wife. It affected the Sabbath, because we were scheduled to get in here before Sabbath actually started. And here we were, sitting in the airport in Minneapolis when the sun went down. So it affected our ability to keep the Sabbath. It affected you, because you don't have the opportunity to get to know my wife as well as you might have. It affected the rest of you out there in telephone land because I'm probably not as awake and alert as I could have been and probably not doing as well in the sermon as I possibly could have done. See, the ripple effect just goes out and out and out and out because I was just a little bit arrogant and thought I was right and you're wrong. Look what it did to me. Look what it did to you. Look what it did to God's Sabbath. On and on it goes. Look what it did to my body. I'm tireder today than I should have been. <laughs> and I get to stand up and tell you I was at church. That's fun too. And I really enjoy telling you about my problems. But I decided to include this because <laughs> it's a living example. <laughs> It's a testimony to what happens when you lift yourself up in pride and say, I'm right and you're wrong. Simple little example. But Satan is not the problem today, brethren. He is going to be bound and chained. And we're told by James that if we resist the devil, he will flee from us. And he cannot affect us in our pride and vanity if we resist in that way. So then who is the problem today? We are. I am. We're the problem. Don't pass the buck. Don't pin the tail on the wrong donkey. What a mess the church has become 
because of pride, vanity, selfishness, and self-righteousness. What's a God to do? To be continued.